Well, let's pray together, and then we will open God's word. Father, as we set our hearts on the fact that you are both good and gracious, and at the same time the sovereign king, we're in awe. Our world is full of powerful people. Few of them seem to be good and gracious. Many of them are powerful and ambitious. Many of them are influential and self-serving. But to see through your word and through hymn texts such as these that you are all-powerful and all-good and all-gracious is astonishing. But those powerful realities combine to settle our hearts and bring peace and confidence and joy in a way that we would never find anywhere else. If you were all-powerful but not good, you would be a terrible sovereign. And if you were all good yet not powerful enough to do the things that were in your heart, you would be a pitiful God. But you are good and powerful. And so we are not in fear that you would harm us today. We are in awe that you would save us and call us into your presence. We are grateful that you have promised to provide, to protect, to shepherd, to lead, even to discipline for your name's sake. And it's all with a view that we might be sharers with Christ, sharers in his holiness, sharers in his inheritance, sharers of heaven and glory and eternal life. Thank you. And we pause at this point in the service to continue praising you for all that you are, yet at the same time to ask that you would open our eyes to see you as you are, open our hearts and our minds to understand and know you as you are. Please forgive us for imposing our own imaginations upon you. And as Matt made mention of the fact, we're sometimes more influenced by, by pictures that we have seen of you or even uh, sentimental stories that have been told about you and Oh, Lord God, we renounce every false notion of you in your greatness and your goodness, and we submit our hearts and our minds to you and say, help us, Lord, to think your thoughts. Because our thoughts are not your thoughts. And because we don't think like you think, our ways are not your ways. Oh, we repent. And we ask that you might bring our thinking into conformity with your thinking and that our ways would be brought into conformity with your ways. I pray for those who at this moment feel the weight of their sorrows more than they feel the, the comfort and strength of your love. We would never minimize their sorrows, but I ask that their sorrows would be swallowed up in the greatness of your good, gracious love. For those who are swallowed up in their self-centered thinking right now, Lord, would you gently lead them uh, on that pathway of repentance out of that kind of self-centered thinking and into a Christ-centered thinking? That today would be the day where they submit completely to you as Lord and King and come to know the rest that follows such submission? For those who are weakened by life, just weary, feed them richly, strengthen them on the word. May their hope be renewed as they see King Jesus accomplishing their salvation despite the fact that so many of us don't understand you as you are and aren't even fully committed to you as we should be. You remain committed to your eternal purposes to do us good and not harm. 
Oh, Lord God, just stand before us today in all of your glory and change us and grow us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you open your Bibles to Mark 11, please? And if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you in the seat rack in front of you, you'll find this on page 847. Mark is one of the Gospels found in the New Testament. And he compiled an account under inspiration of the Holy Spirit that is intended to strengthen your faith and mind, to give us reason to believe, to be absolutely certain that these things are so. And we're coming now to chapter 11. Before we read the text, um, did you ever hear a remake of a song that you loved and yet said to yourself, ooh, that's not at all what the author, the composer, the writer ever intended. And, and you said to yourself, that, that should never have been done that way. Well, that's actually part of the reason that most of us watch things like American Idol and America's Got Talent, right? It's not because we want to see the, the really glorious people. It's because like, you want to see the train wrecks on the front side. <laughs> and I'm always amazed, too, at the people who actually believe they truly have music in their souls and voices that are worth listening to. And, and some of them get offended when the professional panel of judges says, oh, thanks, but no, that's not what we're looking for. And, and then some of them persist a little bit and, and, and pour out their offense on the others who are there uh, as if they have no right to criticize their voices. Yeah, well, those would be examples of those who may have good intentions but really don't understand the nature of music, don't understand the nature of those songs that have been composed or the arrangements that have been made. In some respects, we're about to encounter a, a remake of a psalm that God initially gave through the psalmist by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and for hundreds of years people have continued to sing it, but that at this particular point it's being in, in, sung in a way that reveals ignorance of the psalm's true meaning. Furthermore, there's a significant addition tacked on to the end of that psalm that shows, gives us greater insight into the lack of understanding of this great crowd who is assembling in Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, we came to the end of chapter 10 last week, and Jesus told his disciples for the third time, we're going to Jerusalem, and there I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be falsely accused, tried, condemned to death, crucified on a cross, but in three days I'm going to rise. And all through Mark's gospel and other gospels, the writers tell us that even though Jesus was saying it very clearly, the disciples didn't get it. So you have the disciples who are largely ignorant of what's really about to happen. Then you have this massive crowd that's gathering for the week of Passover. This is the greatest week of celebration on Israel's calendar. Thousands and thousands of people gathered in Jerusalem for this holy week. And it culminated on the particular holy day when Passover lambs were slaughtered, sacrifices were made in both praise to God for the deliverance from Egypt, but also in the hope that there would be some kind of, of forgiveness for their sins and vindication and, and, and that their relationship to God would, would remain intact. 
What these crowds really don't understand, though, is that God's own Passover lamb is arriving in Jerusalem on this particular day, and the vast majority of them miss it. So as we read through the first 11 verses of Mark 11, pay attention to the nuances uh, that are unfolding. Pay attention to what, the, what Jesus says and what he has the disciples do and how the crowd responds. And if you even want to put your finger back in Psalm 118 so you can flip back and forth and compare some of the things here, uh, th- that would be fine too. But we're going to move uh, methodically through this passage today and we're seeking to answer the significant question, what kind of king is Jesus? And then in a very personal way, what kind of king do you want him to be? And if those two questions aren't actually answered in the same way, then you could potentially experience the kind of of spiritual tragedy some of these people experienced and be left without a king at all. Now, you look at the text with me, and if you want to follow along on the screen or on the copy of the scriptures there in your lap, um, you do that. But I'm going to read through Mark 11, 1 through 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them that Jesus had said what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches or palm branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. It's almost curious to me. It seems like a climactic moment, and yet you come to verse 11, and it almost just seems like whatever was supposed to happen didn't happen. Jesus comes into the temple, looks around, and then they leave. You really want to keep reading, and thankfully that's not the end of the gospel, but that's the end of that particular day. What kind of Jesus do you want? Because in the larger context, we've been reading several things that indicate to us that people had their own notions about what Jesus should be for them or what he should do for them. Some of it goes back to chapter 10 where we were this past week, and I'll say more of that in just a moment. You know, there have always been many answers to that question, many perspectives, and some of the world's bigger religions have their own ideas about who Jesus is. I'll call them the Jesus options. You know, if we were living in the Middle East, it's likely that we would be a part of Islam. And in Islam, Jesus is a prophet, even a great prophet, but they don't recognize him as 
a crucified Savior. As a matter of fact, they would deny that he was crucified, just that God took him to heaven at a certain point when his prophetic ministry was done. In Judaism, Jesus is recognized by many as an influential teacher, but no one would say, oh, he is the Messiah promised by God Almighty through the Old Testament prophets. So there's an option about Jesus. There are popular preachers, one of whom today, if you were to tune in his service from his very large church, he would tell you that Jesus will give you your best life now if you, if you just follow him. He would say things like this. If you don't think you can have something good, then you never will. The barrier is in your mind. Your own wrong thinking can keep you from God's best. To experience God's immeasurable favor, you must rid yourself of that small-minded thinking and start expecting God's blessing. Start anticipating promotion and supernatural increase. You must conceive it in your heart before you can receive it. In other words, you must make increase in your own thinking, then God will bring those things to pass. You would hear message after message after message that gives a tip of the hat to Jesus that might make passing reference to him, but at the end of the day, it's all about you and expelling the negative thinking from your life and having positive thoughts that will set you on a a destiny to fortune and good health. And so it's a different kind of Jesus option. In our own study of Mark's gospel, in answer to this question, what kind of Jesus do you want? We, we followed the uh, several characters and testimonies. Remember what, what Herod thought of Jesus? Oh, he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Well, that's actually not accurate, is it? There were others in that same passage referred to, just the crowd. Some said he's Elijah. Perhaps they thought he was reincarnated too or just a a second manifestation of this Old Testament prophet or others were saying, well, he must be one of the Old Testament prophets or or just continuing that long line of, of prophets. Well, certainly he was a powerful prophet, but he's more than that, isn't he? That's actually not an accurate description of Jesus. The zealots, one of whom is among the 12, Simon, the zealot. He's a politically ambitious uh, person, part of a party, I should say, that was politically ambitious. They were intrigued, if not excited, by the prospect that Jesus would stand in, in the middle of this really difficult season of Roman occupation and be the revolutionary leader that they needed to overthrow Rome and, and I did this intentionally, make Israel great again. Then James and John, last week, remember how they came to him? And they said, Jesus... We want, you to ask you, we want to ask you to do something for us. And he said, what is that? And they said, give us the prime seats of power and influence in your kingdom. Put one of us on your right hand and one of us on your left hand. And Jesus turns that around, doesn't he, and says to them, you want to be great? You must be the servant of all. Not seated in a position of power and influence, you must be the servant of all. What kind of Jesus do all of these people want? And is it the Jesus who actually has arrived? Many of you are familiar with the the preaching and teaching ministry of Paul Tripp. We used some of his material for a parenting conference last year. He's got some great uh, written material, devotional books, and, 
and other DVDs and sermon series. I was listening to him preach this week, and, and he, in, out of the same passage, said, if, if many of us are honest, we would have to say that we really want a target Jesus, as he described him. Because you want to be able to kind of do all your one, you just want a one-stop spiritual shopping experience. And you got your list of all the stuff that you're hoping Jesus will supply. Then he made reference to the fact that some want vacation planner Jesus. Because at the end of the day, you'd like life to be comfortable. And you want to be entertained and well-fed. That was convicting for me because I thought, you know, when it comes down to it, there are days where I, I, I just want comfort and ease. And I pray for it and get a little perturbed sometimes when Jesus doesn't provide it for me. Or then he said, some of you want district attorney Jesus because you want somebody who's going to make every wrong that you've ever suffered right and he's going to bring to justice every person who's ever hurt you. And I thought, yeah, I can see that. What kind of Jesus do we really want? You know, in this text... There's really only one answer that God is looking for, but I think many of us, if we were honest, would have to go back to James and John and say, you know, we want Jesus to do for us whatever we ask of him. We want Jesus of our own making. We're even happy to call him king as long as he does what we want. But that's not the Jesus who arrives in Jerusalem, is it? It's not the Jesus even that meets this crowd where they want to be met at this particular point because when it comes right down to it, Jesus very simply is God's king. He's the one who's been appointed by God Most High to enter the world first as a a baby and then grow and then assume that season of earthly ministry and he is the miracle working Messiah. He is the powerful prophet who preaches God's word in a way that no other person was preaching it or teaching it in that particular day. And he arrives on this particular week. It's the culmination of religious uh, observance, as I said, the week of Passover. And, and thousands are gathering in Jerusalem and the disciples are there with Jesus. He spelled it out, what he's going to do. And they're amazed, as we saw last week. Some of them are afraid, but they're still confused about it. If you just think for a moment about the week of Passover, the celebrants, as one author writes, remember the beginning of Israel's deliverance from slavery when the Lord brought judgment by killing the firstborn in every Egyptian house but passed over the Israelite houses where the blood of the Passover lamb had been applied. Those who celebrate the Passover also look forward to the ultimate liberation. So there's a backwards glance through their history of redemption, and there should be a forward look uh, uh, anticipating a great redemption. The problem is the, the forward look has been skewed and obscured through the years. As a little sidebar, go back to verse 2 with me. I found this very helpful this week as I uncovered a couple of thoughts from, from one of the authors that I, I like to consult who suggested that verse 2 might actually be tied back to the lesson on greatness in God's kingdom. You want to be great, be the servant of all. And rather than putting James and John in, in seats of influence, what's the next task he gives the disciples to do? Go fetch the donkey. Where's the greatness in that? Where's the position and power and influence in that? Well, there's not. That's not... 
That, that's not at all Christ's point. No, he's on mission. Now, we also are aware, because if you're looking at this text, and maybe you have notes in the margin as I do, or, or even some of these verses are set in quotation marks or italicized, depending on how your copy of the Scriptures are paginated, but you realize there's, a, there's also a quotation that is coming to the surface here. That, that word, Hosanna, is significant. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. goes all the way back to passages like Psalm 118 or even prophecies like Zechariah 9, verse 9. But I would submit to you that, that the people who are using this word, Hosanna, and singing this great hymn aren't really thinking about the fulfillment that is underway. The expectation of the crowd runs along a different line. After the disciples retrieve this donkey and they throw their cloaks over it, verse 8 tells us that many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. I, I want you to understand the significance here. The cloaks on the road and the leafy branches or palm branches symbolized to the Jew a, a nationalism and a victory, be a celebration of sorts. And the term Hosanna, which coming out of the, the Jewish native tongue simply means save us now, taken straight out of Psalm 118, is not something they are using to, to recognize that Jesus has come to Jerusalem to die, but that their hopes are he will actually bring a restored kingdom. As I said a little while ago, that he could expel the, the Romans who have occupied Israel at this time, and Herod and Pilate and whoever else was associated with that foreign nation, and that this individual could restore Israel's greatness. They're not celebrating of the arrival of God's Messiah King who will conquer their sin by his own death in the coming week. They're not celebrating the arrival of the one who will overthrow the grave by the end of the week as he is miraculously resurrected. They're celebrating their ideal of the Messiah King that they think they need at this particular junction. And we know that because verse 10 is an addition Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. You cannot find that phrase in the Old Testament anywhere. David, certainly, the greatest king who ever lived. The Messiah, the promised son and descendant of King David. But you can't find the hopes of the Old Testament saints expressed in this specific way. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Then you even think back through some of the things that we have learned in the series of the gospel. Now, you've got to dust off some of your memories because I know we took three months off from the gospel of Mark study and just came back last week. But if you go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 15, in the opening comments that Mark is setting down for us, introducing Christ, his life, his ministry to us, the first words of, of Jesus that are recorded as far as his preaching ministry goes are these. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So when Jesus begins to preach and teach about a kingdom, it's not about the political overthrow or the reestablishment of the, of the greatness of David's line and David's throne. It's actually a message of repentance and faith. Then remember, we came to chapter 4 where the kingdom of God is described by Jesus as like powerful seed 
scattered on ground, and some of it takes root, and it, and it bears fruit, and it changes things, or the mustard seed. I mean, he's teaching things that just don't quite fit into the political agenda of groups like the zealots. Then we came to chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, where he taught that the kingdom of God is for those who humble themselves like little children. He's not suggesting that the kingdom will come through force as if he could raise up a great military uh, uh, fighting unit to overthrow the, the Romans. No, he talks about little children and humility. And that fits with this theme of, of repentance of sin and faith in Christ. Also in chapter 10, he said it's hard for rich people to enter the kingdom because their wealth gets in the way. He actually said it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. You would think that he'd want to recruit the wealthy people so that they could bring their, their resources to bear on this great revolutionary plan that he is unhatching. So the kingdom message and the kingdom focus of Christ has been wholly contrary to what the ordinary person might think. And then we came to chapter 8. And again, Christ was preaching. And Mark said that calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself as opposed to standing up for his rights. Let him take up his cross an emblem of death and dying to self rather than rallying our forces to take back our nation from Rome. And then he says, and follow me. And where is Jesus going? He's going to Jerusalem to die on a cross. So if we had been listening carefully to Jesus preach and teach about the kingdom, about his mission, about his purpose, we would be swept up into a wholly different kind of fervor at this point. Jesus went on to say in verse 35 of Mark 8, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus preached about the kingdom of God, not the coming kingdom of our father David. And as James Edwards writes in his commentary, the ascription of the latter to him reveals a confusion on the part of the crowd about his true mission. So as you stare at verse 10, they're singing his praises, but they're not singing the true message that Psalm 118 or Zechariah 9 actually holds for the people of God. It's a remake that doesn't wash Turn to Luke 19 with me, please. It's often very helpful to compare the gospel accounts one to another. And that's one of the benefits of having multiple gospels written about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. But in Luke 19, verses 41 through 44, Jesus actually responds over the same scene. Mark did not include these words of Christ. Luke includes them, though, for us, and I think it gives some added perspective. This is after he has ridden the colt into Jerusalem, after he has gone into the, 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 the temple and seen things, apparently. But it tells us that when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. 
but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Do you know what breaks Christ's heart? Is that while there are a hundred different options that people are carrying in their souls for who Jesus is, what kind of king he might be for them, the vast majority don't see he is God's king and that there really is peace standing at the doorstep, if you will. And if they knew Jesus as he was and would follow him as he had called them, would believe the things that he has taught them, they would experience the thing they long for. But because many in that crowd thought that, you know, real peace would be expelling the Romans, establishing Israel in its sovereignty again. Or like James and John, real peace would be having the the primary seats next to the throne of Jesus. Or like Herod thinking, you know, if I could see Jesus come and perform some of these signs, that would be really amazing. Or the crowds who thought he's a prophet or or Elijah, or like some of us who think, well, if Target Jesus would show up today and check off all the needs on my shopping list, if car repair Jesus would show up, that'd be one of my points lately, if vacation planner Jesus would arrive and and make my life comfortable and, and easy, and Jesus in his sovereignty and goodness says, That's not the peace you actually need. And that's not the peace I'm actually offering. How much like the disciples and the crowds and Herod and the zealots we are. The message of Christ's kingdom is one of active repentance from sin and faith in God. And in the same way, he did not come to establish the kingdom of Father David as those crowds were singing on that day. He he is not interested in being the poster child for your personal cause. He's not that kind of king. He's not going to come be your king for a day and get you out of whatever fix you're in and then allow you to step back onto the throne the following day. He wants to be king of it all. Oh, and by the way, he will be. That's what Philippians tells us. A day is coming when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God alone. That day is coming. We would be wise to take advantage of his gracious offer now before he demands it and requires it because there are according to the teaching of scripture days coming where for some it will be too late to to repent and turn to Jesus and it's not that it's not that the offer wouldn't extend it's that you won't have the capacity in your heart i wonder if like the crowd you're singing a version of hosanna save us save me but you really have your own agenda for what that would look like You're not singing from a heart of humility and repentance toward your sin. You're not looking to be saved from yourself. 
you're actually hoping that Jesus will arrive and change your circumstances, change the people who make your life miserable, change your financial fortunes right now. You, you want King Jesus on your own term going back to James and John where, where you're saying, Lord, I want you to do what I'm about to ask you. And in your own way, you're saying, can I have the power seat? And Jesus is saying, go fetch the donkey. Or like the zealots, you're saying, can you get rid of the corruption in Washington and do something about the oppression of the immigrants? And Jesus is saying, you know what? I want you to go into all the world on my mission and make disciples. Jesus is God's king. Is he your king? Verse 11, let's go there one more time. He entered Jerusalem, went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. As I said at the outset, it seems anticlimactic, doesn't it? And it is. I think that's part of the point. This, this is the great entry. We call it the triumphal entry, but that's because we have the advantage of seeing how God fulfilled all of those Old Testament prophecies and, and what would transpire in the coming seven days. But the vast majority of people who were present at that moment totally missed it because they had their own notions about this king. But you know what thrills my heart? This is day one. And though Jesus leaves the temple precinct, actually leaves Jerusalem altogether, goes back across the Mount of Olives and spends the next night away from the city, he's going to return. He's going to remain on his mission. And despite the ignorance of some and the indifference of others, Jesus will accomplish everything that God, his Father, had commanded and purposed from eternity. And I'm reminded again today that just like you and I don't know everything and we don't understand as much as we think we understand about God's person and work in our generation. He remains on mission. He is accomplishing a great work. And if you've read to the end of the story, then you know that God will actually save people from every tribe and tongue and family and nation. That's what Revelation tells us. From all the generations. And a mass of people will be gathered around the great throne of this king one day and worship him as he is. People from every generation generation and every millennia, it's not dependent upon our understanding or even our compliance with this king's mission and program. He will do it. So that's reason to take heart for some of you who say, my kids don't get it. I don't get it. This community doesn't get it. This church doesn't get it. Hey, Jesus is king and he gets it. Is God's king truly your king this morning? Have you submitted to him, surrendered? Those are good words. You don't negotiate with a king like this. You, you bow before him. Let's pray. Our God and Father, as we look into your word and we recognize that there was much confusion, much ignorance, some of it even willful, some were hard-hearted in their rejection, we... We find ourselves all throughout this, and oh, Lord God, we, we ask that you would be kind and patient with us as we seek to know. But on this day, as we see the king enter Jerusalem for a great redemptive purpose, we ask that you would give us a right understanding. First, that we may worship him as he deserves, and then also that we may serve him as he must be served. Forgive us for establishing our own sovereignty such a foolish act, but 
all of us wrestle with being in control of our own lives, of functionally being our own kings. What a wreck of this life we make as we seek to control it all. How happy it makes us to think that there is a king who is both good and gracious. A king who is truly sovereign over all. The king who created all that is and entered the world, humbling himself, becoming the servant of all, making himself obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Thank you, King Jesus. You've done what we never could do. Give us faith to believe. And out of that faith, give us joy. Give us peace. Bring the peace that you knew was available to Jerusalem, that moved your heart to weep because they could not see it. Thank you for that tender heart. Would you move into our households, our families, our marriages, this church, this community, and establish your dominion? Then we would also ask you to forgive us for trying to tack you on to life, trying to act as if you're the the target Jesus or the vacation planner Jesus or the district attorney Jesus. We kind of want you for selected service in, in our lives. We want you to correct some things and remedy some things and bless some things, but then just kind of move to the side while we go about fulfilling our own purposes and agendas. Please forgive us. What a dishonor to you that is. But today, by faith, we say you are our king, even as you are God's king. So do all your holy will. Establish your throne in every one of our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.